Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's program, a look at office relationships in the aftermath of the scandal that brought down McDonald's CEO. Also, the question of orphaned wells, another 1,300 added to the inventory in Alberta. How big is the problem and how do we clean it up? The economic impact of the opioid crisis. A new study puts a pretty big number on the question of lost productivity due to this crisis. Plus, a look at the state of democracy in Canada and how addressing party nomination races can actually make things better. All right, let's talk about office relationships, office romances. I mean, the TV show The Office made office relationships seem very charming. Jim and Pam, right? Who doesn't, who doesn't love that story? I think in reality, office relationships can be fraught with all kinds of, of dangers. And it's, it's the kind of thing that people need to be very careful navigating. Now, where things really get complicated is when the office power structure comes into consideration. And we've got a pretty high-profile example of this. The CEO of McDonald's, one of the biggest companies in the world, uh, Steve Easterbrook, has been ousted, resulting from a consensual relationship with an employee. But given the dynamics that exist, especially when we talk about the CEO of a massive company, can a relationship, an, off play, uh, an office place relationship, in that sense, really actually be consensual? And what's the difference between, you know, the laws in the United States and the laws in Canada around all, all of this? Would it have been any different for Steve Easterbrook if he were running a Canadian company? Well, joining us uh, for some insight on all of this, uh, always pleased to welcome to the program our next guest, Howard Levitt. He's a senior partner with Levitt LLP, Employment and Labor Law. Has a great piece today for Post Media on all of this. Howard, thanks for joining us here. Welcome well, thanks to the for having me. I appreciate it. So, I mean, office relationships, um, sometimes they're fine. I guess sometimes they're complicated. When, when do these become an issue? Well, they certainly become an issue when there's a policy in place, as there was here, prohibiting them. And this policy at McDonald's said no one can have a relationship with a subordinate who reports them directly or indirectly. And, of course, if you're the CEO, everybody reports to you at least indirectly. So as the person who's the CEO who's supposed to be the role model for the company, who's supposed to be enforcing the policies, for him to have a relationship and violate the policies totally offside, especially if he concealed it. Right. And so someone in that position obviously should know better. Well, he he obviously did know better, and in Canada, it would have been cause for his discharge. He wouldn't have been entitled to any severance pay, although they took the position there was no cause, and that could be a difference in the law or just a PR exercise. Unclear. Right. So how does, how does that power structure come into play? When, when someone is the CEO of a company, how does that change their, their interactions or potential social interactions with those beneath them? Well, they they can't have relationships that are sexual in nature with 
other employees in the company. It's really as simple as that. The law is pretty clear, especially if there's a policy. But if there isn't a policy, there's a Court of Appeal Ontario decision that said that any relationship between a superior and subordinate is inherently coercive and is, has an element of sexual harassment. And then there's always the issue that retrospectively, what was was, was a consensual relationship is viewed as the spurned party to be a non-consensual relationship as they revisit it in their minds with the herd of the breakup. So it's just a dangerous game to get into. Does and I mean, if it, if it becomes public knowledge, then that, that somebody uh, in in the office or somebody who works in the company is is engaged in a relationship with the boss or the CEO, how does that impact the rest of the workplace? Well, other people in the position of the subordinate say, "Well, how can I get ahead? This person's going to get the favors, they're going to get the advantages, they're going to get promotions. I don't have the same chances anymore. They're going to get resentful of that, and they're going to be demotivated." So it's. Lots of bad can come from this, and really nothing good. Right. Uh, so what might seem consensual, as, as you write, what is consensual today retrospectively may appear otherwise, particularly if the relationship ends badly for one of the parties. So it's, it's, yes. best, to, it's best to view it that way. That's right. And as an employer myself, I worry about that because someone can say, well, it's consensual, but they didn't change their view later on. Or they argue that it was coercive, and they take the position that, they're disadvantaged with a breakup. In any event, the point is that there can be legal liability, whether it's a harassment claim or just other employees upset and pressure. Right, because there's at least the possibility that, that maybe it was coercive, that somebody who's in a position of power, uh, certainly someone who's the CEO of a large company, they, they do have levers at their disposal if they were inclined to try to coerce somebody into a relationship. That There are certainly things they could do. And that, that's true, and we hear it all the time from clients coming in and saying that a relationship that was ostensibly or would have appeared to the surface to be consensual actually wasn't. That the rewards being given, there are inducements to continue the relationship, and obviously the relationship has ended by the time they come to my office. And from employers claiming that a relationship was consensual, and now the employees claiming it wasn't, and what evidence they have that was consensual. The fact that they stayed in hotel rooms together, et cetera, is yeah. not evidence it was consensual. There's really no evidence it's consensual other than perhaps a tape recording. And even that is misleading at best because it doesn't, it's just a photograph of that moment of the relationship. So it's your understanding, at least your read of Canadian law and, and recent precedent, that in a Canadian context, uh, Steve Easterbrook probably still would have been fired and would have been denied severance. Uh, in Canada, he would have because he breached yeah. the policy. And, and, of course, he, he put himself in that conflict to begin with. And he damaged the company's brand by having a relationship. I mean, at the same time, workplaces are still places where people meet. Um, you know, if, if people are, are colleagues, one is not subordinate to the other. I mean, is, is that safe or is it something that, that, that workers, that companies should really just avoid altogether? Well, I think companies should be smart to have a policy saying you cannot have superior sport relationships directly or indirectly, just like McDonald's did. If they're coworkers, peers, different departments, there's no uh, ability to influence, to benefit or punish the other either party by the other, then it's not a problem. And most most people historically have met in the workplace who have been couples. A generation ago, that's where most marriages emanated from, where they first met. Right. Today, it's the internet, but. 
but there you go. It still happens in the workplace. Yeah. Is it something that people should disclose to de- their employers? Because, you know, down the road, one of them might get promoted, and now you've got a different dynamic. Well, I don't. if there's not a policy, there's no point in disclosing it. Although it could be seen as embarrassing if they don't disclose it, if they're superior subordinates. So I think if they're superior subordinate relationship, they should be upfront about it from the beginning because it looks better rather than it being found to be surreptitious, as happened with in this case with McDonald's CEO. If they're not superior subordinate, there's no point because there's nothing. It's not prohibited unless, of course, it is prohibited by the company's policy. But very few Canadian companies have policies prohibiting any relationship. They, they have policies saying, one, you can't have a superior subordinate relationship, and two, if you have any relationship, you should disclose it. But if no such policy, there's no such requirement. Well, some important points. People can find your piece. It's up at uh, financialpost.com, also at calgaryherald.com. Uh, Howard, always appreciate the insight. Thanks for making some time for us here. My pleasure. Thanks for speaking to me. All right, take care. That is Howard Levitt, uh, senior partner, Levitt LLP, Employment and Labor Law. Uh, so real interesting look at kind of what the law, the legal reality is. And how companies are dealing with this. I mean, for Steve Easterbrook, he very clearly broke the policy of the company that he was the CEO of. McDonald's has a policy that employees who have a direct or indirect reporting relationship are prohibited from dating or having a sexual relationship. He says, uh, although we do not know yet who the relationship was with, we do know that by definition, that person must have had at least an indirect reporting relationship to him. So uh, Orphan Wells, as in O-R-P-H-A-N, Orphan Wells. And look, this issue has come up before. This is an ongoing issue uh, in Alberta. We have got, it's hard to know for sure, uh, but somewhere in the neighborhood, 150,000, 150,000 old wells in, in varying degrees of decline. So, I mean, you've got some that have been abandoned because companies have gone under. You've got some that have basically run their course. So potentially some, though, that, that could be brought back at some point. And so it's, it's unclear exactly how much we need to tackle or, for that matter, what it's going to cost. Uh, as mentioned today, we uh, learned that Calgary-based Houston oil and gas has ceased operation. So that means about an additional 1,300 wells that are going to be in need of cleanup represents about $80 million in, in estimated costs. So it is quite a price tag associated with this. So how big is this problem? How best to tackle this problem? Or who's responsible for this problem? And we're joining us uh, for some thoughts on all this. Very pleased to welcome the program. Uh, Lucia Mullenbox, who's an associate professor of the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary, has uh, done a lot of work on this particular issue. Uh, Lucia, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, in terms of the, the number of an inactive oil wells, do, do we have a, a clear idea of approximately what, what that number is? So right now, uh, the estimate on AER's website, or the Alberta Energy Regulator's website, is 90,000 90, inactive 90, wells. So those are wells that haven't, they're not producing within, for the last 12 months, they haven't produced anything, but they also haven't been properly cleaned up. 
are, are, are those, do those represent any wells that, that could potentially become active at some point? Sure. That's the right. reason why they're being left inactive and have not been. So when I say cleaned up, I mean plugged and abandoned so that the groundwater is sealed with cement and, and surface material is removed or, or you could remove contaminated soil to reclaim the land. And so all that would be done if the well has reached the final end of its life. And so the idea is that there are nine thousand wells in Alberta that companies are saying no no these are going to eventually be reactivated and so for that reason don't make us put it into the final decommission right so so the number of inactive wells and that obviously then represents some wells that that are still owned or are, are still claimed by an active company yeah, so exactly. And, and so you mentioned orphaned wells, and these are wells where they're no longer, they're, they're, uh, the, the company's gone bankrupt. And of orphan wells, there's only 3,400 orphan wells. And or now there'll be more after this Houston yeah. oil and gas. But um, so the point is, I mean, the you hear about Houston, well, you hear the number of wells from this company going bankrupt and you think oh this or the number of orphan wells is going to increase by like 30 percent but uh compared you know still a drop in the bucket compared to the potential wells that you know very a lot of these wells very well might become orphan in right. the future yeah i know a study you did a couple of years ago you, you sort of you try to calculate what it would take to get some of these wells back in operation that even if we had a massive increase in, in oil prices a relatively small number would actually end up back in operation that's what yeah that looking at the data so it was data i think ending in 2007. So this was an older study. I did it for my dissertation, but sure enough, if the, I was looking at the likelihood that inactive wells would ever be reactivated, looking at historical prices. So when prices were high, um, were wells being reactivated? And sure enough, no, they, they, they weren't. And, and so I think, yeah, the, the, the model implied that even with it, oil, the product, the percent of oil that could be extracted from these wells increased, or if the prices went much higher, we still wouldn't see reactivations of wells. And I think that it speaks to that when you hear about how many wells are like 60 years old, and, you know, the chance of them being reactivated is slim. So the reason, I mean, yeah, this, so the reason that we leave them inactive forever just because there's potential to reactivate that you know, that that benefit of potentially a well being reactivated is pretty small. Uh, so in, in this sense, then, I mean, higher oil prices might address some other problems, but it's it's not going to fix this problem. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I, yeah, that's probably, yeah, fair, fair, fair yep, fair statement from mm-hmm. the study. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the, I think the big problem with the, yeah, right now is that wells are, you know, the liability regime in Alberta is, is, is pretty lenient towards, yeah, you know, not, not worrying about final cleanup costs and historically it's been done. So just, I mean, they, for a while the, the Orphan Well Association, uh, once a well goes into, if a company goes bankrupt, the Orphan Well Association, uh, it takes these wells, cleans cleans them up, and then divides the cost across the industry. And so the industry was saying, "Oh, we are paying for the cleanup, so we also shouldn't be, have to put post a large bond or or have a time limit because we're going to take care of the problem." But you can imagine, in a time when prices 
prices tank and there's fewer and fewer players left holding the bag that this system isn't really you know it's not it's not developed for the doomsday scenario it's it's, it's a great program for when things are going well but, yeah. So in terms of the rules we have in place that you mentioned, uh, just the, the, the expectation on companies to clean these up or, or the timelines that, that we have, maybe compared to other jurisdictions, is, is that something that we need to take a look at? Yeah, I think so. In the U.S., there, most states have a timeline of, of either like a year or two years of inactive before a company has to clean or start uh, plugging and abandoning the well. Uh, that said, even though it's in place, this timeline, typically there it's a little bit like a rubber stamp that it's easy to get extensions along the timeline. So how effective the timeline, timelines are is another story. But that said, there is a timeline in the U.S. Most states have them. I think actually it might be even all states. There's a study by Resources for the Future that that uh, that has a map that shows the different timelines across states. And if I remember, I'm pretty sure they all had timelines, and Alberta does not have a timeline. We can have a well be inactive for as long as as a company wants it to be inactive. And every couple of years, there, these orphan wells make headlines, and then uh, we hear the government say, okay, we're going to start thinking about a timeline. But that nothing has ever been changed. Right. No timeline yet. Now, we did have that Supreme Court decision earlier this year that, that ruled that energy companies must clean up these old wells, even in bankruptcy. Do, do we have a little more clarity on, on the liability question? I mean, I, I think the liabilities are... I think it's interesting because, so you, you know, if, if, if this Houston oil and gas becomes bankrupt, but they had posted a security bond for all of the cleanup costs, then it wouldn't be as big of a worry because we would have the funding available to, for the cleanup. But in Alberta, it's this system where if you have more assets than liabilities, you don't have to post a security bond when you drill a well. And, and so that means a lot of wells don't have a bond posted and and the idea is oh that's fine because the orphan well association is going to is going to clean it up and then the industry divides it across the industry depending again on this this uh li- assets to liability ratio but it's funny that so the asset to liability ratio it's not it hasn't been updated since good times what so they to calculate assets you need and in just how much money you could get from your well and and to calculate that these this industry net back and as far as i can tell this step back was from a time when prices were over a hundred a hundred dollars a barrel maybe 150 dollars a barrel and and it should, according to the Alberta Energy Regulators' rules, it should be updated on a rolling basis every three years, but it hasn't been. And so, so basically, assets are inflated. And then liabilities, this is a problem across the United States, too, is that the calculation and how liabilities are calculated, typically they're very underestimated. And, and if you compare the costs of cleaning up a well, that the Orphan Well Association pays compared to what um, companies are, are you know, uh, cal- uh, uh, the, the deemed assets on the books. There, there's a big difference, and so they're underestimating liabilities, overestimating assets, and so a lot of companies don't have to post a security bond, and so there's a lot of uh, wells that don't have secure. They're, they're not. Yeah, they're, there's no, no uh, financial bond in place for these this the in the case that they go bankrupt mm-hmm. 
Uh, clearly, there's, there's a big price tag associated with cleaning up these wells. I mean, do, do you think there's an economic case to be made, almost you know, like a, a job creation kind of program to, uh, to, to devote resources to cleaning these up and, and putting people to work doing that? Yeah, that was the case made uh, to the federal government that, that I think Saskatchewan made a couple of years ago saying, you know, we please give us money so that we can put people to work. And I think there's uh, um, activists that are pushing this idea of this Alberta Liability Disclosure Project. I just looked it up. Um, I think they're really pushing the idea that we can clean up, <laughs> do good, but then also get people out working. And um, yeah, so that's a, that, it's a good idea. And I think... Yeah, people push for it. Well, we'll see what happens in the weeks and months ahead. Lucia, thanks for your insight on this. Appreciate it. Make some time for us here today. Thank you. Take care. Uh, That's Lucia Mullenbach, Associate Professor of Economics, University of Calgary, talking about orphaned wells. Another 1,300 now will be added to the mix after this uh, announcement today. There's been a lot of focus uh, recently on the opioid uh, epidemic, right, And, and the human cost of that. Uh, the number of people who have died, um, you know, the lives disrupted. So there's very much uh, a tangible human cost to all of this. But what about the economic costs of the opioid epidemic? Because, you know, people who are, are dying of overdoses are, are people who do have careers, people who, who are contributing to the economy. And and so what's the result of of you know, people having to deal with these addictions, the treatments, and, of course, people who are dying. Um, so there, there's some numbers now that we can associate with this, and they are very, very big. Uh, perhaps as much as $5 billion in lost productivity costs as a result just from opioid overdose deaths. Uh, now, this is the work uh, of an economics graduate student at the University of Alberta spent some time crunching these numbers and it's some research that's getting a lot of attention uh alex chung is his name and he joins us on the line here this afternoon alex great to have you with us you're welcome to the program well thank you for having me rob i appreciate that thank you uh so let's talk a bit about kind of what got you interested in this and and digging a little deeper into what the actual numbers are Where, where did this begin for you so i guess what started this was that um I was volunteering in the summer of 2017 to lend a hand in the community. Uh, the uh, 710 Club is an organization that provides uh, meals for people in need on Vancouver Island. And one time I was volunteering there in the summer of uh, the 2017, I was noticing a nurse was a community nurse was handing out uh, naloxone kits um, in the community. I noticed, and when I saw that, I realized that even though you know when you look outside your window, you don't really see the opioid crisis. Uh, it's a real thing affecting real people. And by seeing that, that inspired me to study the economic impacts of the opioid crisis. So how do you go about doing that, though? So the way I did that is I used um, a model of, I guess, labor productivity developed by the CDC back in the 60s. And what I know, I was able to get data from uh, the government of British Columbia, the government of Alberta, and Statistics Canada. What this data told me is it told me the proportion of people, a number of people who passed away. Uh, their ages, and the portion of occupations that they were employed in. A shocking figure was that uh, nearly 70% of opioid overdose victims, uh, about 11,500 of them since 2016, were employed before they passed away. And so by knowing when people passed away, and the average age was 42, I knew their occupation. And most people retire at 64, 65. I was able to project forward their labor productivity using that data and basically get a, a better measure of the lost productivity due to the opioid crisis. 
And it's a pretty staggering number, close to five billion dollars, billion with the B. That, that's a huge number, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is. You know, when I when I started the project, I try to come at it as the most unbiased way as possible. And I, and uh, I think the biggest thing was that that causes again nearly seventy percent of people uh, who died, you know, over, over those were working before they passed away. And that's a shocking figure. Um, another big notable thing was that uh, about a third of people. A third of victims were actually employed in construction before they passed away. So that was definitely another shocking figure as well. Right. I mean, ultimately, as you say, it's it's a human story. It's about lives impacted, lives lost. But just in, in terms of the economic impact, it's, it's kind of a different way of, of thinking about this problem, isn't it? Well, absolutely, Rob. I know some people have claimed that, you know, putting numbers on people is, uh, is it's too cold and calculated and that people are worth more than, and I agree as well, um, you can't really never measure uh, the value of human life, uh, especially a loved one. Um, but I think that, you know, the argument of, of saving people obviously hasn't been enough. And I think um, having, you know, putting a dollar for people realize that having these people pass away, um, there actually is an economic cost and we lose that through lost labor productivity. And that cost is unfortunately reversible. Once people pass away, you know, they don't come back. You know, if you have someone who, who has years of skills and training and they pass away, you know, average age of 42, that's 22 years of lost productivity. And that's never coming back. And as big as this number is, as I understand, that might actually be a conservative estimate. Oh, absolutely. I know that may shock people. There were some studies done in the United States uh, because they're suffering from a huge opioid crisis as well. In fact, certain states have declared uh, this significant economic issue. In fact, uh, a lot of uh, research is being done in the United States. There's one paper that I went to that actually said that they think that uh, the opioid crisis is underestimated by even 30%. And the reason why they say that is that uh, the government, for example, of Canada only started, I guess, database and tracking the deaths since 2016. And, you know, it could be underestimated because when someone comes in um, to the hospital and they, and they can't breathe or they uh, pass away, you know, what killed them? Well, respiratory distress did, but if they were consuming opioids and we weren't able to know that, uh, they don't show up in the figures. So it could actually be much larger than that. And also this study doesn't account for all the lost skills that can take years to acquire. When someone passes away, you know, they're gone. Now, just for you personally, I mean, you know, having taken such a deep dive into all of this and, and really getting better understanding of the scope of all of this, I mean, what, what kind of an impact has it had on, on you? Well, that's a great question. I know, uh, you know, actually, when I, you know, walked in, I had no idea what the results were going to be. And I, I'm uh, shocked in some way that they were what they were. Um, you know, obviously, you know, when I, I'm an economics student here at the University of Alberta, and I was thinking about, you know, uh, pursuing a PhD, and I still am. But it's definitely changed my, you know, got me interested in potentially a career in healthcare down the road. Again, you know, I'm not sure uh, which way I'm going to go, but I know for a fact that um, it was definitely a project that helped me change the way I see things. Um, and it challenged some of the assumptions that, you know, uh, people may have had of opioid uh, overdose victims. Well, and, and yeah, I think it opened up uh, further avenues for research, too. And I think that's been some of the reaction, right? That maybe this is something that, that we need to, to study closer and get a better understanding of all of this. Well, yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, I think that, you know, again, it's shocking. When nearly 70% of people were working before they pass away. And they pass away, and it's, uh, for a lot of Canadians, they're aware of the opioid crisis, but not really aware of the economic impact. And I, so I would say I would definitely agree with you on that one. Well, some important work, Alex, and uh, really appreciate making some time for us here today to talk more about it. Uh, all the best to you, and thanks again for joining us Thank here. You. Thank you so much for having me, Rob. I appreciate that. Take care. Thank you.
All right, there you go. Alex Chung, he's an undergraduate student in economics at the University of Alberta. Uh, And, uh, yeah, the author of this research, it's getting a lot of attention. So, of course, uh, October 21st, federal election, not everybody happy with the result, but it was an exercise in democracy. Uh, And for all intents and purposes, it was problem-free. Now, I think there are legitimate points to be made about whether our electoral system has some issues in terms of kind of the weird result we got between the popular vote and the seat count. I think some have raised concerns about, you know, our system of government itself uh, and how we go about electing governments in this country or perhaps some perceived uh, seat imbalances in Canada. So those are issues that I think are fair to talk about. But by and large, uh, I think it was a fairly contested election. There's an interesting uh, new paper out from the McDonald-Laurier Institute, though, about one problem in our democracy that we don't pay a lot of attention to, because I think we see our electoral process as, as separate from what goes on within political parties. And political parties are almost viewed kind of like private entities, that they can do things how they want to do things. So they'll go about picking their candidates, uh, and then we'll see the end result. And we'll go and we'll vote, and there's candidate A and candidate B and candidate C and so on. But should we be concerned about that part of our democracy and the way in which political parties are conducting nomination races? Well, a new report, as mentioned from the McDonald-Laurier Institute, suggests maybe we ought to be. You can read this for yourself at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Uh, but joining us on the line to talk more about uh, this study, uh, one of the authors, Brett Byers, is communications and digital media manager at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Brett, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Rob. Uh, so, I mean, how should we look at political parties and nomination races in, in the context of what we consider to be our democratic system? Well, if if we're comparing a normal election to a nomination race, the first thing that we look at are the rules that exist in a normal election. So um, normally there's a impartial third party that looks at uh, election races in, across Canada. That's Elections Canada. The provinces have their own variations of that. But then if you look at the nomination races, there is no third party arbitrator. It's actually the political parties themselves that are in charge of this race with almost no regulation on how it's conducted. So what's the consequence of that? Uh, we have a system that is effectively the wild, wild west with nomination races where there are allegations of ballot box stuffing, of people voting from outside of ridings. There are all sorts of concerns regarding uh, whether or not diaspora communities are being uh, unfairly leveraged for certain candidates' advantages. And the ultimate consequence of this all is that we have a political system that is open to infiltration and uh, open to undue influence. I mean, typically, I think, you know, we we take a hands-off approach and we sort of say, look, parties can do things how they want to do things. The parties want to flip a coin to decide candidates or if they want nothing but candidates named Steve or however they want to do it, that that they can do it their way. And then once it gets to the election, voters can judge each party accordingly. But is is the hands-off approach really working? Well, the hands-off approach has its benefits. So, uh, we've, we're not suggesting that, you know, the, the federal government or the, the provincial governments should be meddling in the internal affairs of parties. But rather, we should have some concern when there are illegitimate races being conducted, because if for no other reason, that disincentivizes uh, good candidates from putting their names forward in the process. If the sense is that the nominations are all going to be rigged or all going to be... Uh, uh, operated in a way that's unfair, why would anyone who is of quality put their name forward? 
the other concern with this all, though, is that uh, it opens it up to foreign influence. So if you are, let's say, the Chinese government and you wanted to get an individual in uh, parliament who is sympathetic to your interests, the way you could best do that is through nomination races. In, in many cases, these nomination races could actually be more competitive than the races themselves, because in a given election, many of these seats don't actually flip between the parties. So we ought to be looking at this not just in the context of internal party affairs, but the effect that it has on our politics once these people end up getting to parliament. Of course, we got the factor as well of the party leaders. And I, I think, you know, we, we see that in other respects in our democratic system, the amount of power that, that party leaders have. And maybe that's something we need to talk about. But certainly when it comes to nominations, right, party leaders have a big say, right? They sign off on nominees so they can kind of decide, you know, no, I want that guy. I don't want that guy. How much do the leaders play into this? No, well, the leaders have a major role in most parties. Um, some parties do have commitments to fair and open nomination processes. What we see is that there's a uh, quite strong bipartisan tradition of flaunting that whenever they feel like it. Um, this is not an issue, though, that is particular to any given party or any given leader per se, although some have perhaps had uh, more, uh, more stories about them written than others. So uh, with regards to the role of the leaders, though, uh, yeah, I think there, there can be a concern about whether or not a, a leader is captured by the same process, for instance, uh, you know, parties themselves run their leadership nomination uh, processes, and while they all have different systems and rules for doing so, a a pretty legitimate concern is whether or not someone who is going to be, uh, you know, either the next prime minister or next leader of the opposition, uh, whether or not they're compromised in some way. Because, again, without Elections Canada monitoring or any other sort of body monitoring this in an impartial way, the avenues for corruption are just outstanding, right? It would be unconscionable, for instance, if we were to say, oh, let's just remove all all, all regulation from an impartial, you know, third party, in this case Elections Canada, from general elections. So why should we look at these these party races much differently? The, The impact ends up being quite similar. Uh, so it should be Elections Canada, then, you think, that, that has some oversight role here? Well, uh, not necessarily Elections Canada or Elections uh, Ontario or any of the other provincial ones that should be necessarily doing this, but rather there should be an impartial third body of some sort responsible for it, whether or not that's the provinces want to contract out a, uh, a consulting firm to conduct it or whether or not there's some avenue of the party that's completely independent from political interference. Uh, this, this system can vary, but the, the, the underlying principle that there ought to be a, an impartial arbiter of these sorts of elections, I think, is consistent. And beyond that as well, there, there needs to be more of investment from the federal government in terms of preventing foreign interference into these races, too. So uh, it, it, there is a federal role, but it's not necessarily to be the sole regulatory authority over all nomination races. Basically, we can, we can discuss the, the different delivery method for how we want to accomplish this, but the underlying principle should be the same, that these, these races need to have at least some regulation, some standard, and, and some form of you know, ethical application. Well, people can read this for themselves. It's up at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Brett, thanks so much for joining us here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, Brett Byers, uh, Communications and Digital Media Manager at the McDonald laurier Institute. Uh, come on through this piece for the McDonald laurier Institute on what they see as a, a, a democratic blind spot. Ensuring maybe the party nomination races uh, have a little more transparency so that they can be genuinely competitive.
And I mean, the other thing is, too, I mean, certainly you got some some writings in Canada that are real strongholds for certain parties. And we had a lot of those in Alberta where there was zero drama. It was going to be a conservative victory and it was going to be probably a very large conservative victory. So really, in a lot of ways, I mean, the nomination race in certain parties, in certain writings, really is the contest. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.